A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there, and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. Let us engage in uh, some reveling in wrong think. I'm very happy to have uh, James Chernowski, who is a policy analyst for Libertas Institute, joining me. And James, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, I saw a headline today, and it was it was the first one that's made me laugh in a while. It was from The Onion, and it showed a picture of Mark Zuckerberg, and the headline said, Facebook announces plans to break up U.S. government before it becomes too powerful. And I went, all right, <laughs> there's a story I think I could get behind. But I have you on today to discuss uh, Facebook is in the news and actually, uh, I guess, a lawsuit uh, filed by, was it 49 out of the 50 states that uh, that are, is going after Facebook? It's it's about, I think it's uh, the number is something like 46, uh, if not 48 of the U.S. attorneys general that have filed a lawsuit. Um, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, on its own, is also filing a separate lawsuit against Facebook um, in regards to uh, numerous things, claiming anti-competitive behavior underneath the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act, as well as the Clayton Act, as well. Okay, so spell it out for me, a layman. What exactly is Facebook being accused of doing? Too, being too awesome at what they do, that competitors can't find a toehold in the market, or is there something more to it? You're, you're probably not too far off with the original guess is that they're, they're just too good. Now, the, the reality is, is that <clears throat> the FTC and these attorneys general are suing Facebook on the grounds of anti-competitive behavior. They think that uh, Facebook's acquisitions of companies like Instagram and WhatsApp uh, were done in an anti-competitive uh, uh, behavior and that the those decisions to allow those uh, transactions to move forward uh snowballed into this problem that they're they're claiming today uh there's a there's a whole host of things that the the attorney general suit uh lays out as to why they think that facebook is doing anti-competitive behavior and harming uh you know consumers and small businesses uh it just remains to be seen as to whether or not that's something that will hold up in court what i'm hearing though sounds like a lot like what businesses particularly very successful businesses have been doing for a long time and that is as as companies come and start to gain traction and competitors start to gain traction it's not unheard of for a big company to say you know what you're doing a good job we'd like to buy your company and they do it in in the interest of you know protecting their market share but it it's not like it hurts that company who just you know their their creators just sold it for you know a bundle of money yeah you're you're absolutely right i think the thing that that people fail to realize sometimes with the startup kind of culture is that even when like a company like Instagram was started up by the time that Facebook decided that it wanted to acquire it, um, which by the way, was like a widely scrutinized move. Like they were made fun of a lot for that decision uh, because they paid a billion dollars to go and acquire Instagram back in 2012. And the, the reality is, is that sometimes when you're in that kind of an environment as a startup, there's only so far that you personally can probably take the company. And, you know, Facebook saw something there 
and they thought that there could be something more out of Instagram than what it was, which kind of like when we were discussing like about uh, Parler uh, recently, where the functionality of the app is just like, okay, because it's an early uh, you know, part of the process right now. Instagram was very much at that point too when Facebook acquired it. And then Facebook invested a lot of money in, in developing features and resolving some of these glitch issues and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little bit of this hindsight bias because Instagram has grown substantially from what it was when Facebook acquired it to, as opposed to what it is today. Uh, so I think that the attorneys general as well as the FTC is making this assumption that, oh, you know, had Facebook not acquired Instagram, that Instagram would have blown up into the giant of a company that we see today. And that's not necessarily the case at all. Uh, it's probably one of the deepest flaws within their argument in and of itself is just this assumption that, well, you know, these companies could have been something more if not for this anti-competitive behavior by Facebook to gobble them up before they could become a, a legitimate competitor. Now, James, because you are a policy analyst with Libertas Institute, a very free market uh, supportive think tank, um, I have to ask you this. What is the proper role of government when it comes to antitrust? Is there a time when government should rightly step in and, and break up what, what are called monopolies? Or is, is that still regulation of the market and therefore antithetical to a free market? I think that there's always a role for the government to uh, place in terms of trying to protect uh, potential anti-competitive behavior. Sometimes I think what gets overlooked sometimes is how government regulation or government action can artificially create monopolies. You need not look farther than how AT&T was prior to uh, the 1980s when it got broken up. Um, that was because it was a government-granted monopoly. And the the that's something that I think gets overlooked. But in terms of like market processes, um, even through an artificial uh, manner, like I think that there still is a role for antitrust uh, to be involved because sometimes there could be an argument to be made that uh, mergers could result in harm for consumers. But that's why the antitrust standards that we have in the United States since the 1970s have worked out so well is because we put a, a massive uh, amount of uh, you know uh, influence on making sure that the consumer is not harmed in any of these kinds of transactions. And by focusing on that, as opposed to focusing on how big companies can get, like Facebook is being targeted right now in part because of how big and how successful they are. It's focusing on, okay, well, is Facebook harming consumers by acquiring Instagram? And the answer, at least at face value for me, is probably not. There's not very clear evidence that, that Facebook is harming consumers by providing free products um, that they actually want. Uh, there are other facets of this case that maybe there might be something a little bit more to. I know like Mike Masnick over at TechDirt highlighted maybe um, Facebook and how it manages its uh, APIs is um, is one thing that might have a little bit more traction. But these, these cases are extremely flawed because they're targeting a company for being successful as opposed to examining how they might be harming consumers and whether or not antitrust action is necessary. That's interesting. I mean, look, when if, if if consumers actually are being harmed, I agree. There, there's a legitimate role government can play in making sure the harm stops. People who've been harmed can be made whole. But there's also kind of a, I don't know if it's an envious mindset or just, uh, I, you know, you, how dare you succeed, you know, so well. But there is a mindset out there that wants to punish people for being hugely successful. Oh, absolutely. I think, again, this is why the cases that we're seeing against Facebook and Google uh, particularly are rather alarming because these are 
probably two of the companies that are most emblematic of the American success story and, and how our approach to technology and thinking about these issues being so drastically different than our European counterparts has led to us being the home of so many innovative companies. And now to see us uh, in, through antitrust weaponizing it as a political tool uh, because we don't like the fact that they're big or that they're doing something that we that some people might find objectionable. Um, it's 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 very sad to see because it's not that's not the purpose of antitrust. Um, if we're focusing on consumer, I think that that is the whole point and the foundation of antitrust law is to try to protect consumers. But when we're seeing politicians weaponize this law or even attorneys generals weaponize this law with political intent behind it, um, that's very disturbing to see. I would agree. And, and yet um, I'm sure they do it so that they can have bragging rights. Look what I'm doing for you. I'm going to bat for the little guy. Uh, but but I have to think in some way it's really benefiting those attorneys general or maybe it's a ter- it's benefiting, you know, the various politicians who want to step in there and create that regulatory role. What's in it for them? Well, I mean, again, like you kind of hinted, there's there's a lot that can be said for somebody if they want to have a, a political foothold right now with the tech lash that has been going on against these technology companies for years on end. Um, you know, there's a lot of political capital that can be gained by being the guy that's willing to go up to bat to take these guys on. So it's not necessarily surprising to see the New York attorneys general um go and be the leader on this because she wants to have that face time and there's a lot to be gained if she actually wins the case for her politically uh she has you know higher ambitions um so it's not necessarily surprising but i think the thing that that scares me most about this is that right now with the antitrust there's obviously a huge focus on the technology companies but what i think these people are failing to realize is that the decisions that could potentially come out of these lawsuits have a far wider impact on industries that fall well outside of big tech in and of itself um some people that could particularly be hurt uh, as well are these very uh, entrepreneurial startup companies that we like to talk about and the venture capital like there's an argument to be made that if we start judging companies based off of how big we let them get or things of that nature um, more arbitrary as opposed to more rigorous analysis that it's going to become a lot harder for you to, to, to become that next Instagram where you come up with this simple concept and it turns out to be a billion dollar idea. Uh, and that's and that's most unfortunate because that it's our embracing of innovation that has allowed the United States to be so creative and so much ahead of the curve uh, of other nations. James Chernowski. Analyst with Libertas Institute, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, expound on this uh, subject for myself and for my audience. Um, Can people find your writings pretty much anywhere? Yeah, yeah, you can find my writings anywhere on the Libertas website, on my Twitter profile at jamescz19, and keep up with me there. Ryan Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. I just mentioned the number because my phone was ringing here a few moments ago. And if you have something on your mind, you can call that number. I will talk to you. No, that's really how it works. Sorry, I was trying to make it sound bigger and more important than it probably is, but there you go. 801-331-8113. So... I know there's a lot going on. There are a lot of moving parts. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the lawsuit that Texas has filed. But I got to tell you, there's so much about this I don't know other than um, 
I, I will say this. I've heard from a, a number of people whose opinions I really respect, some of them lawyers, who have, uh, have stated the way that this lawsuit was filed, this was not a Hail Mary kind of, oh, my gosh, it's the last second. We've got to throw something out there to do anything to try to, uh, you know, thwart Joe Biden from taking office. It actually looks like somebody's been reading their Sun Tzu and the Art of War. And, uh, and there, there appears to be some very uh, calculated strategy in how this lawsuit was filed and why it was filed. Um, I, last I checked, there were 21 states that had signed on. Um, some of them had sent, I, and when I say signed on, I should clarify, 21 states had sent uh, amic- uh, amicus briefs, which means they, they were essentially signaling their support for this lawsuit that Texas has filed against four states, which it says did not follow their own election laws. And I'm trying to dumb this down to where even a layman like myself can understand it. But the, as I understand it, what Texas is saying is, hey, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania did not follow the letter of the law, while the rest of these states did follow the letter of the law when it came to how and, and, and the way that they went about counting their votes. And so they're saying that that's not fair. And in cases like this, you can, as a state... Take it directly to the Supreme Court to resolve a dispute with another state. Now, the question, you know, I hear being asked is, well, but where is their standing? How how can Texas prove they're being harmed because of the way these four states apparently ignored the law when it came to to the counting of their votes? And, And specifically, what I believe it came down to was they changed their election rules not through the legislature, which is supposed to have the sole authority to do that, but either through judicial means or through executive means. So those who are, are trying to spin this as, well, these states are just trying to you know, do anything at any cost to try to get their guy, the orange man, you know, to, to stay in office. That might be the result, depending on how this shakes out, but it doesn't sound like that's exactly the reason why. And the Supreme Court has has really only about three different options that it can take here. It can say, yes, these states did not count the votes correctly. Therefore, um, their electoral votes don't count. That would take away enough votes that Joe Biden would not have the necessary 270 votes to uh, to assume, you know, the office of presidency. That's what it can do if, in fact, those laws matter. And as Texas is saying, these states didn't follow the letter of the law, but the rest of us did. Therefore, uh, this this taints the election process or the Supreme Court can simply say, well, no, it doesn't matter whether they follow the law or not. Or it can just ignore it, which is kind of saying the same thing. As much as I want to see, you know, this thing tied up and a neat bow put on it and, and it all resolved and done. I don't think it's going to happen that way. Because if, for instance, the Supreme Court opts for one of those last two alternatives, well, no, the law really doesn't matter. OK, so they've ruled then that you don't have to follow those election laws to the letter. Do you know who counts the votes? It's the president of the Senate. Do you know who that is? That's Vice President Mike Pence. What's to stop him when those votes are to be tabulated, I believe, uh, is it next week? They're supposed to be certified. 
What's to stop him from uh, starting to, to count the votes? And of course, because it's a time of COVID, ordering the observers to be 200 feet away with binoculars. And then suddenly announcing, oh, no, a toilet has overflowed in the Senate uh, building and we have to evacuate the Senate chambers. And Pence just sits there and sits there. And then, oh, wait a minute. What's this? A container with with more elector ballots? Remember, the rules don't really matter. He stops the counting at a certain time. And then when it resumes a few hours later, lo and behold, Donald Trump has more than enough electoral votes to be president. Because... As the Supreme Court ruled, those laws don't really matter. I know that's just one scenario. And that's just I mean, that's that's purely playing with some imagination here. But wouldn't you hate to be on the Supreme Court right now? Can you imagine the pucker factor <laughs> that these these justices are feeling? They are going to be the most hated people on Earth, no matter which way this thing goes. I don't envy them. There's a part of me going, how did we even get here? All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Thanks for your patience. Welcome to the show. Yeah, that's got to be straightened out, Brian. Uh, I think uh, I think it's a valid, you know, what, what they're asking. You know, why, why can they just change the rules in the last minute? To me, this whole election, the way it's been going the last couple of years, I mean, like, why do we have a server in a foreign country that controls our election? I mean, it's so obvious what's going on. It totally needs to be dismantled and rebuilt, almost like our own government, the federal government itself. I mean, this, this server's in foreign countries to do what? To control elections of all countries that can be manipulated by the push of a button. Can't have it. I've heard it alleged, and again, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. The the thing is, that, and you'll hear the media say, but where's the evidence? Where's the evidence of it? Look, if if in fact there is nothing to hide, if there is if there is no monkey business, then I would think Joe Biden would be the guy who would be most concerned about. You know, we really should let this uh, be heard and, and do this investigation because it's going to totally vindicate my election. But sure, we're not, they're not even they're not even taking the stand in Virginia. Or, or Georgia, the, the 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 people that are in charge of the elections in Georgia, they won't testify. You know why they won't testify? Because they're afraid of getting charged with perjury. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah. The bottom line is they they shouldn't have been able. They should have changed the rules without legislation. I mean, that's they're right there and there. It's it's cut and dry that all the states that have done that, their votes need to be thrown out. They can't be. They're not valid. That's not going to go over well either. No matter how justified it may or may not be, that's that will not go over well. I mean, I, I looked. I, you know I, if Donald Trump was on the other side, I would make. I would be happy that that happened too, because you know what? This is bigger than them too. It is, and and I hope it's clear. I'm not just advocating that uh, we need Trump, and he's the only one who can do this. If the process has been so corrupted to the point that it can be um, massaged, if you will, in a desired direction by those in power, then uh, you know the. There's no point in even having elections anymore. They're going to get their way by, by some slim margin, no matter what. Yeah, the only thing I would, I wouldn't be able to feel good. You know, I just keep thinking of my kids and, and younger generations that are going to be left with what we're going to be leaving them if we don't get this rectified and well, corrected. 
It's going to get rectified, but uh, I'll tell you, Rob, the thing that, that's concerning me, I looked at the map. The, I, I actually shared a picture of this map on, on Facebook yesterday. It was only 17 states at the time. And I looked at that and went, whoo, that was a shiver that went up my spine. Why? I don't know. There was just kind of a little uh, vibe of, uh, I wonder if this is what it felt like in 1860. When you could see the states starting to line up and uh, we are on board with this and others saying, well, we absolutely are not. There's some pretty serious division. I don't say this to make light of it. I'm just pointing out that uh, no matter how this shakes out, about half the country is going to be outraged. Maybe to the point of violence. I hope not, but I guess we'll see. We're going to talk about the rule of law when we come back. And what does it mean? Maybe not so much in uh, relation to the election, but in relation to the lockdowns. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for being a part of my growing audience. It's an exciting day. It's an exciting day in the sense that there's a lot going on. There are many moving parts in our world, and nobody in their right mind should be saying, I'm bored. <laughs> Nothing exciting ever happens. We've, uh, we've had more than our share this year, and it looks like it's just going to keep dialing up, at least for the foreseeable future. Still on tap this hour, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts on, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about systemic, or rather systematic corruption. And I know people kind of balk at that. Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? But look, you're dealing with human beings. The potential for corruption is there. If anybody can look at our political system and say, there's no evidence of any any corruption. I mean, we just spent the last four years listening to endless cries about the corruption and how our elections were corrupted and they were influenced by Russia. And, you know, they, for crying out loud, they impeached the president over allegations that this had happened. And then suddenly, you know, in, in the matter of, uh, of one election cycle, oh, but, but this one, you know, this is, there was no possibility of corruption. It was just a matter of better strategy and, and more votes. And you got to do a better job attracting voters. Not buying it. No, it's a system that's, that's ripe for being gamed. And we're going to talk a little bit about that coming up. By the way, something else I want to share with you, if I have the time. As unhinged as some of the president's critics have been over the last four year, four years, there's there's one more opportunity they have to run headlong into another unpleasant reality. And it's this. Did you know the president can pardon himself? Yes. Before he leaves office, he can pardon himself. And I've got a commentary from Judge Andrew Napolitano explaining why this is so. First, let's talk about lockdowns and the rule of law. You hear that phrase, the rule of law? What does it mean? Well, here's what Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has to say. He says Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorish wrote in his latest book, quote, Madison warned that what we call the rule of law depends on the existence of laws that are reasonably clear, finite, and stable. Only then can people plan their lives and order their affairs. The rule of law comes under threat, he warned, when the laws become so voluminous or so incoherent that they cannot be understood, end quote. Now, Gorish published his book in 2019. James Madison spoke those words more than 200 years ago. 
And like most of the wisdom espoused by our founding fathers, such words were not just meant for the moment. They were meant for posterity. They knew that if this country was to last through the ages and not just one generation, eternal lessons regarding good government must be upheld. So Ethan Yang explains the rule of law is an essential idea that forms the foundation of a free and prosperous society. Without it, the arbitrary hand of tyranny and incompetence is free to wreck the lives of everyday citizens. To back this up, he shows how the United States courts state that the rule of law is a principle under which all persons, institutions, and entities are accountable to laws that are publicly promulgated, equally enforced, independently adjudicated, and consistent with international human rights principles. Essentially, the rule of law dictates that nobody, not even our leaders, are above the law, that the Constitution, not the tyranny of the majority or the minority, reigns supreme. The rule of law allows a society to trust in its governing position, or governing system, rather, to plan their lives without fear of arbitrary restrictions, and to have confidence that contracts will be enforced. Such guarantees are responsible for modern prosperity. Economists such as Deirdre McCluskey cite the freedoms and security provided by such ideas as the rule of law as one of the primary reasons for the widespread prosperity we have today. Human history has been characterized by thousands of years of stagnation and suffering. But within the last 200 years, that changed for the better because of ideas such as the rule of law. So why is this relevant today? Well, the rule of law, Ethan Yang writes, is clearly the foundation of our republic. Without it, modern society would cease to exist in short order. In the age of COVID-19 and lockdowns, politicians have either attempted or have blatantly flouted the rule of law. They've acted as tyrants and not public servants by violating state constitutions as well as the federal constitution. They've exercised hypocrisy by flagrantly violating the laws and suggestions they write. And finally, they've undermined the stability of our institutions by frantically and arbitrarily issuing new laws, causing mass confusion as well as hardship. Although it's important to respond to public health concerns such as COVID-19, it's important that our leaders do so in a way that is prudent and, most importantly, legal. Constitutions serve as the laws that government must abide by, for we are a nation of laws and not a nation of tyrants. The consent of the governed is made on the condition that those who exercise power over our lives do so within the boundaries set by a constitution, which protects, among other things, inalienable rights. So not only is there a direct correlation between prosperous societies and limited government, few people would consent to being governed by a dictator. That's why it's so concerning that politicians across the country, from governors to mayors, have enacted policies that either violate protected rights or erode the constitutional protections that do so. Recently, in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, New York, versus Andrew Como, governor of New York, the Supreme Court struck down a policy placing restrictions on houses of worship while neglecting to apply such restrictions to other establishments. Justice Gorish wrote a concurring opinion that begins, Government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis. At a minimum, that amendment prohibits government officials from treating religious exercises worse than comparable secular activities, unless they're pursuing a compelling interest and using the least restrictive means available. Yet recently, during the COVID panic, certain states seem to have ignored these long-settled principles. End quote. So in other words, there is no 
pandemic clause in the Constitution that allows governors to disregard rights explicitly outlined in the Bill of Rights in favor of arbitrary preferences on essential and non-essential businesses. Now, there are certainly doctrines that give government the power to curtail rights, such as the police power and the precedent set by Jacobson v. Massachusetts. But such policies must be narrowly tailored. Arbitrary restrictions such as those set by the Cuomo administration and governors across the, the country are unconstitutional. In other words, they can't be seen as narrowly tailored. Justice Gorish elaborates on this when he writes in his concurring opinion, quote, at the same time, the governor has chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers essential. And it turns out the businesses the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists and liquor stores. Bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are all essential, too. So according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. Who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Ethan Yang writes another example of leaders flouting the constitutional limits include the governor of Michigan attempting to unilaterally extend her emergency powers to continue her state's lockdown against the wishes of the legislature. In Wisconsin, the governor and his unelected health department attempted to enact lockdown policies without any authority granted by the state legislature. Fortunately, both governors were stopped by their state Supreme Courts, but the list of those who have yet to be confronted is far too long. Back in September, Ethan Yang wrote about an article covering a scandal where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi violated San Francisco restrictions on indoor hair salon services. Since then, such acts of hypocrisy and blatant violations of the law have increased in in frequency. He says some of this is hypocrisy. Some of it is just blatantly against the very laws these politicians advocate for. But not only does this reduce long term trust in the rule of law, it also undermines the science they claim to represent. The laws become confusing, they become arbitrary, and it makes it seem like a big joke. The key takeaways, he says, is that this this article is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to actions that not only fail to support public health, but that also undermine the rule of law. From a practical standpoint, adhering to the rule of law is important because it's entirely possible and certainly preferable to uphold public health without undermining public trust in our institutions. Philosophically, the rule of law is important because governments that undermine or violate this principle will not exist for long. Politicians across the country are slowly, in some cases aggressively, unraveling the rule of law through unwarranted exercise of power and poorly justified actions. From the exercise of power prohibited by state and federal constitutions to the blatant hypocrisy to confusing and arbitrary laws, our system of good government is ailing. And lockdowns are the disease. Ethan Yang says the solution is quite simple. End the lockdowns and adopt a strategy that does not encourage tyranny. And if that's too much, then he says at least, at the very least, follow the law and be consistent, especially if you were the one who advocated for it. That's a lot of common sense. It's an excellent article. Look for it in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills and be back just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's see what we have time to cover. Again, if I don't have time to cover a particular article, you will find it in the show notes, and I would strongly encourage you, find some time to go to my website. You'll find a lot of great reading material. You can also subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a comment. I do appreciate it, even if it's saying, hey, you should be doing this better or you should be doing more of this. I like the constructive feedback, and this is a very handy way it comes directly to me. At this point, I'm not uh, I'm not big enough, famous enough that uh, that I wouldn't be able to respond. So I, I do respond to each message that I receive. OK, why do we care? Why do we care if there was, you know, some some uh, corruption or some uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for uh, in, in the election? Fraud. Why should we care? I mean, the goalposts keep moving. Well, there was no fraud. Well, the fraud wasn't widespread enough to have affected the election. There's there's no corruption. There's been no proof. Okay, I get it. There's a narrative we're supposed to follow. The narrative is orange man bad. And, and now the adults are going to be back in control. The, the same Washington, D.C. swamp that has uh, had a lot of say for a lot of years. Why does it matter? If there's corruption, Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, I think does a very good job of outlining why this matters. And it doesn't mean you should be obsessing. Look, the people who put this all on, well, it's either Biden or it's, you know, Trump. You're just shilling for one or the other. Sorry, but you're projecting, my friend. I don't really care about politicians. What I do care about is that government is, first of all, limited Remember that whole rule of law thing we talked about in the last segment? And secondly, I want it accountable. So if somebody does start to, you know, trying to game the system, they are held accountable for it. Punished, prevented from doing more of the same. Robert Wright says what the left calls systemic racism and the right calls the deep state or the swamp represent ideological shadings of a bigger problem sometimes called systemic corruption. The corruption that America's founders and framers and European classical liberals like Frederick Bastiat most feared. If we could scotch that snake, most socioeconomic problems would dissipate and some would evaporate. Now, he says most readers are conversant with individual corruption, like when a public official wants a bribe to expedite issuance of a permit. Such acts resemble a user fee, but they are arbitrary and difficult to enforce. And the permits themselves are usually unnecessary. So individual corruption abets economic inefficiency. Most countries rightly try to scrub individual corruption out of existence. All ultimately fail, but some tamp it down enough to be better off for it. He says systemic corruption constitutes a much more serious problem because it's not only legal, it bears the imprimatur of the state. Its existence becomes crystal clear when its pernicious impact is personal but when it helps specific individuals, they tend to praise it to high heaven. For most people, most of the time, systemic corruption lay hidden in the grass, a deadly viper ready to rear its ugly head and poison its victims before slithering back into hiding. Systemic corruption occurs whenever laws, rules, or regulations, LRRs, remain in effect despite not leading to announced outcomes. 
Some refer to this as unintended consequences, but intentions remain opaque. While announcements, while subject to some interpretation, tend to be relatively transparent. Who knows what President Obama really intended? But the consequence announced in the title of his one major piece of domestic legislation, the Affordable Care Act, has clearly failed because health care costs continue ever upward in real terms. The rate of growth slowed but remained well above general inflation. Moreover, the slowing was not clearly because of the legislation, and if merely slowing growth was its sole intent, then it should have been called the Going Bankrupt from Medical Bills Slightly More Slowly Care Act. Yet Obamacare remains the law of the land. Why? Systematic, or systemic corruption, rather. Now, many LRRs do not improve human lives on net. Deposit insurance prevents noisy Great Depression-style bank runs, for example. But at the cost of allowing bankers to take on more risk because depositors have no incentive to discipline them by withdrawing insured funds. Several studies have concluded that deposit insurance is approximately a wash making depositors' lives easier but taxpayers' lives worse when called upon to bail out failed banks. The net effect of many other laws, rules, and regulations remains unclear, which means likely they have net to zero, to go, or close to zero net effect. So why suffer them any longer? While their individual effects may be negligible, their combined weight drags on innovation and threatens to turn America from a free country where one can do as one pleases unless expressly forbidden by an LRR to do so to a despotism where one must seek permission lest the government blow all our brains out if we stepped out to pee. As the unlettered farmer Republican William Manning so colorfully put it in his 1798 manuscript, The Key of Liberty. All such LRRs could be written off perhaps with reference to general human incompetence or laziness. But the continuation of LRRs that clearly create net costs, many while doing the opposite of that promised, clearly constitutes corruption of the highest order. America's many so-called wars on drugs, poverty, and COVID represent prime, but hardly the only examples. Many failed LLRs continue because businesses profit from them. And most people do not know or care enough to push legislators on repeal or reform. For instance, American governments could reduce prisoner recidivism rates by paying NGOs to help ex-cons obtain employment and stay out of trouble like the Doe Fund or the Prison Entrepreneurship Program have shown they can do. But instead, some contract with private prisons and parole companies in ways that induce them to raise recidivism rates through the roof. Other governments rely on their own programs, one that most prisoners rightly remain reluctant to use. Other failed LLRs continue because politicians easily confuse constituents by citing faulty statistics, drawing incorrect inferences from correct data, or confounding cause and effect. The great revolutionary Thomas Paine warned us that if LLRs became too complex, quote, the nation may suffer for years together without being able to discover in which part the fault lies. Some will say in one and some in another, and every political physician will advise a different medicine. In the case of Social Security, the nation has suffered for almost a century from a policy deliberately designed to be difficult to unwind. It soon became the third rail of American politics, despite the fact that it keeps poor families poor by forcing them to invest in life annuities instead of assets that can be passed to heirs. The relative poverty of blacks gets blamed on systemic racism instead of the true culprit, FDR's economic ignorance and political hubris. 
Meanwhile, well-meaning scholars such as Derek Hamilton push policies like so-called baby bonds designed to counter the effects of Social Security with more governmental redistribution. Robert Wright says when he personally told Hamilton at a conference in Montana a few years ago that Social Security was a key cause of intergenerational poverty, a point established by NBER researchers researchers rather decades ago, he refused to even consider calling for its reformation. Systemic corruption hobbles the economy, preventing America's economic mustangs, its entrepreneurs, from roaming freely over hill and dale in search of novel resources and solutions. Just running brings many people great joy, even if it necessitates dangerous leaps of faith that destroy their nascent businesses. Nothing ventured, nothing gamed. Systemic corruption, however, teaches aspiring entrepreneurs that nothing will be gained, so don't bother to venture. Asian, black, Hispanic, Jewish, white, fe- white, uh, male, female, or trans, keep your dreams small, because if politicians think it will help their careers, they will not hesitate to destroy you and your business, even claim it's for your own good. No matter how outrageous the LLR, good luck reversing it, because sundry twits and dimwits, dimwits rather, will box and dox you into submission. What's to be done? He asks. He says, well, we have to keep the promise of liberty, especially of voluntary association and competitive markets, alive. And remember that no matter how bad things get, the solution to most of our problems, radically smaller government and greatly increased economic freedom can always be implemented tomorrow, one way or another. By the way, he's got a nice tie into how this COVID crisis also suffers from that systemic corruption excellent article again from robert e wright find it in the show notes at the com. i won't have time to share it with you but if you if you uh, really want to read something that'll um i don't know maybe it'll put a smile on your face maybe it will enrage you enrage you depending on uh, how you feel about uh, president trump but uh, i'll also include judge andrew napolitano's argue article rather about how yes the president can pardon himself and his family members, and his closest advisors. And it may just be a good idea, depending on how this whole election thing shakes out. All right, stay frosty, my friend. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is The Brian Hyde Show.